And welcome to another episode of While We Were Waiting, where we share expert insight and true tales from inside the restaurant industry. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I'm your co-host and Martha's husband, AJ Gilbert. All right. Well, currently co-owner and chef at Bon Nui in Los Angeles, Casey Felton is on the show this week, and she's going to share a timely story about how communities rely on each other to survive. But first, I have to make mention of the new music. Well, that's cute because, you know, you haven't heard it yet, but uh, yeah, we're going to stop using, um, you know, there's a fair use law that says you can use music without paying for it if you're kind of commentating on it and using it maybe for a little intro or something, but uh, it's time for us to use the music that's available to us for the licenses we have. And, yes. uh, and it's, so it's not going to be as good. The good news is it's time because we are gaining so much traction and we love that so many people are finding our podcast and putting us up in uh, the top echelon of food podcasts on iTunes. So thank you. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review and give us a five-star Number 40 in Canada. (laughs) Ooh, Canadians like us. Yeah, number 40 in Canada, and we were like number 10 in Ireland, but I'm going to assume that was a pretty small sample size because I have one friend in Ireland. So thank you, Michelle. (laughs) She's 10% good. (laughs) Awesome. So before we get into, you know, a lot has happened this week, but I had something that we did something that was interesting that I I wanted to share before the world kind of fell further apart, which was Somi Somi is an ice cream store from Korea that's here in Dallas and has something called Ah Boong. What is Ah Boong? I'm I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but what is it, Martha? Can you describe it? Well, I didn't know what it was, nor had I ever heard of it until we had it this last week. It's like the, it's almost like a donut, I guess. If, I mean, it has the consistency of a donut, but it's shaped like a fish. And then they like pack it with, they have a lot of different flavors. I picked Nutella. So it's almost like a Nutella stuffed donut that is then dipped in ice cream or soft serve. Right. Well, the the fish. So it's a like a large mouth bass that's stuffed with the. I had custard, right, and then I yeah. had sesame ice cream. Mm-hmm. My shiksas had uh, <laughs> uh, Oreo flavored ice cream, um, and, and then Nutella. They, <laughs> yeah, I had custard and sesame. Actually, I, I wished I had Oreo. Uh, but they they stuff the the mouth of the fish with the soft serve ice cream, which is lactose free, and this thing is which nuts. you need Who- desperately, by the way. <laughs> All right, let's have a long pause so I can cut that out. No, <laughs> it has to stay. So they they stuff the mouth of the fish with the ice cream. It's the craziest thing. Now they can't serve it like like an ice cream cone now uh, because of all the health stuff they're doing. But I mean, if you have not had this abung, and I, I'm sure there's other places that serve it, we went to Somi Somi. You, it's just crazy. Whoever thought of this, however this developed. And it's really good. And one thing that I was impressed by, this is a company from Korea that seems to have managed their COVID outbreak relatively well. And it was, they, they took so many steps. I mean, we haven't been going to many restaurants. We, we wanted to take our daughter out for ice cream and found this place. Uh, they wear um, 
plastic face masks behind the counter. They had changed the menu offering so that the items wouldn't have to be handled very much. They only allowed three or four people in the store at a time. Yeah. And I think they made it work. I was really impressed. It was all contactless payment. You have to use like Apple Pay or something. Um, uh, I think they, they even did a really had, good job. They, at the end, I don't know if you were in there when I went to go pick up the ice creams after they were done being made, they had like this little tray that they made to put them on so that they didn't even have to hand it to you. We will post pictures of this if you want to see it. If you go to our website while we were waiting, podcast.com and click on episode pictures, you'll see a picture of it. It's really cool. So what did we do on Saturday? On Saturday, we uh, we gave our daughter a little civics lesson and took her down to the protest in Frisco, which honestly, I expected like maybe 100 people to be there. It's a relatively small community and one that I didn't think was terrifically politically active. Um, and we got there and it was enormous. There were yeah, so Yeah, there was estimates that there were between there. three and 5,000 people it's including so cool. including the Tea Party mayor of Frisco, Texas, the chief of police of Frisco, Texas. The the, uh, the event was sponsored by the Frisco Police Department. Right. You know, I've been to some protests, and usually I I'm not super allied with whatever it is. It's just something I've wanted to see. I you know I feel You're pretty strong. You're just a contrarian about it. in general, though. I think that you don't like to join the masses in general. It is a powerful feeling. You know, just seeing all those people on the street, it really makes you feel better. And if people haven't had an opportunity to participate and if you've been nervous and scared and, you know, obviously you have to kind of pick the event you're going to go to. And it seems like uh, as we're recording this, that everything's gotten a lot safer and, and mellower, but it's just such a great feeling and it really is inspiring. And I would encourage everybody to get out and experience it. Yeah. And, and you can do it safely too. Let me just point out that we all wore masks and we all did try not to pack too closely together. Um, and it was great for our six-year-old daughter to start asking questions about why people gather and freedom of speech and what happens, you know, when people abuse power. And these are great conversations to start having and teaching your child that their opinions on this do matter and will matter uh, to all the people that they know and love growing up. So I encourage you parents to not be afraid to have some of these conversations. They really... Um, they want to know what's happening. You don't have to get into too much detail, but you can start having those conversations with your kids and you should. So, you know, I, and in terms of the overall issue, right. I mean, we're not, you know, I don't, I, we're probably not super qualified to speak to the systemic oppression of groups of people in this country, but I, I do see policing through the eyes of somebody who's worked in service since I was 16 years old. And I've, we've talked about this since we've known each other, Martha, you know, one of the, I, I see that the problem with policing is that the police are not serving and protecting the communities that they're in. And I think that the reason for this is, is that we're asking police to do things that are contrary to what the public want them to do. I used to fly JetBlue Airlines once or twice a week because I was working in New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco. And this was at the beginning of JetBlue. And a lot of the things that I'm going to talk about, they've changed, you know, as financial pressures and stuff. I think they're still pretty highly rated. But it was just a better airline. I hated flying American. I hated flying United. And JetBlue did a better job. And why was that? Why were the people on JetBlue so much nicer and more pleasant to be with than the people that worked on other airlines? It wasn't because they were different people. I mean, you know, 
I know that in your business, you know, Martha, in, in recruiting, you say that you know you hire great people to make, and that that's partly true. But it's really the the system that people are in, be that a restaurant, an airline, or a police department, that creates the character traits that that the people they're serving see. And what JetBlue did was they created an airline that took away the friction points that cause conflict with the guests and the staff. People get upset about getting bumped from airlines. JetBlue said, we're never going to bump anybody if uh, they don't overbook. Uh, JetBlue, people get feel bad because first class has nicer amenities and nicer seats. Initially, JetBlue didn't have a first class. People hate the meal service on airlines and hate that by the time the food gets to you, they're always out of the one entree that's better than the other. They just didn't do meal service. They removed all these things that created conflict between their staff and their guests and you know, had less service, but a much better experience, which is really what's important. So, you know, we're asking police to ticket people that are driving to work, to arrest people who haven't paid tickets that they got while they were driving to work, to arrest people for using substances that are at best a medical problem and at worst just fun. And and we're making the police the enemy of the community. That's not just bad for the community, that's bad for the police, because then they're interacting with people in an incredibly negative way, which makes them worse at their jobs. And I think that this is a, a part of the cause of the reason that police treat people so badly. Hmm. I think, I mean, yes, I think that there's way too much negative interaction with the police that's not necessary. They don't need to be a collection agency for the city or the state. You know, find other ways to get the money that you need from the citizens who live there, you know, facing off police and, and people in the community over well, let's, money let's, issues is terrible. It's a terrible let's, way to... let's, let's look at this slightly different way. If an American Express collection person had a gun, would more people be shot or less? Right. More people would be shot. Yes. Right. So That's... we don't give American Express the power to collect their bills with a firearm. Why do we do that for the state? What I've noticed in a lot of the um, information I've been getting online and some videos I've been watching and stories that are being told about... Um, interactions between police and people of color, it always starts with being in a car. And I think that, you know, when people are getting pulled over for a traffic ticket, you know, you know, maybe they have a light out in the back of the car or, um, you know, they were going too slow or didn't turn on their blinker or whatever. I don't think that those are things that anybody should be getting pulled over for. There has to be a better way. So a speeding ticket in California costs about $238, depending on how fast you're going. If you can't afford to pay it, they add $300 to that. So this is usurious interest rates. Nobody else can add more than 100% of the cost of something if you don't pay it. Again, could American Express do that? So you have somebody that for, forgets, that can't afford to pay a ticket that they're using to drive to work to provide for their family. They add more than 100% to that. And then if they still can't pay it, they can be thrown in jail. And then they can't work and they can't provide for their family and their family is split apart. Is this worth the ticket? Right. You know, uh, speeding is dangerous, but breaking up a family is objectively more dangerous. Yes. Uh, parking in San Francisco costs $6 for an hour at a parking meter. Which is insane. <laughs> if you don't pay your parking tickets, they take away your car. 
Is that worth it? Why are we doing this? Why are we making poor people the victim of law enforcement? Well, and of when, especially when they are supposed to serve, right? I think that they're the majority of police out there are good and and want to serve their communities and they want to be considered heroes. You see that all over the news when they're taking a knee with the people that they serve. That is the stance. That is what should be happening. It should not be us versus them. It should be we are one. We are a community of people and we will take care of each other. And everything that gets in between, you know, or everything that separates you know, what it is now as adversarial and what it could be needs to be examined and changed immediately. Yes. Let's let our police be heroes. Let's let them take care of the least among us. Let's let them protect us. Let's let them serve us. And let's stop putting them in a position where they have to enforce unpopular things and take people's livelihood and property to collect fines. Right. And it's also at a time, not, you know, just to mention when police departments are having a hard time recruiting people to become police officers, this is a much more desirable job to take, right? One so where you're I, I, actually active in the community and enjoying interacting with the people you serve as opposed to being, you know, afraid and and wielding your gun and shouting your, you know, powerful charges at people. <laughs> you know? Historically, and I haven't been there for a long time, but in England, England is considered to have kind of the best policing or really good policing. And uh, was walking around Soho, the kind of nightclub district of London one night. And there were two young police walking around and there was like this whole gaggle of beautiful women. And they walked up to them and they said, oh, ladies, it's really dangerous tonight. You guys need an escort. And uh, they were all joking with each other. I mean, it probably wouldn't be okay now, but, uh, uh, and, and the two young cops walked, it wasn't dangerous. There were hundreds of people out, but everybody was having fun. And, right. you know, we can choose to be policed however we want, and we should change the way we do this. What was the story about uh, somebody, a friend of yours who said, why don't you just get the cops to drive you home? My, uh, one, my, one of my very first roommates when I moved to San Francisco after college was from Tel Aviv, Israel. And we were at a bar called Mad Dog in the Fog, which has since closed, recently closed. And uh, we had had many pints of beer and we were trying to decide how to get home because driving wasn't an option. And he said, let's ask the cops to give us a ride. And I thought it was a joke, but it turned out that in Tel Aviv, if you're drunk at a bar at three o'clock in the morning, you just uh, flag down uh, some policemen and they'll give you a ride home. We could do that. We, we should do that. Do that. We, we, Why aren't we doing that? We, we would have to pad the back seats. <laughs> but wouldn't this be a better way to interact with the people who are paid with our money to take care of us, make sure we're safe? Without question. Yeah. Right. And then we also have to address the, the issue of accountability, right? And we talk about this in the restaurant industry all the time. And in fact, in every um, interview I do with somebody, I always ask them about, you know, how they hold their staff accountable to the systems and expectations that they have. And in, you know, places like the police department or, you know, uh, in schools and stuff where unions are really running the show, it's very hard to even if you know someone is bad, even if you know they're bad at their job, you can't fire them very easily. And Almost this is impossible. Some, the, right. the mayor I listened to uh, on the New York Times podcast, I listened to the mayor of Minneapolis who was saying, you know, he can't fire cops. The chief of police can't fire cops. They can, they can fire them and then they go through some kind of appeal 
process and right. then they, you know, it's often which is hard and takes time out of the day of what they want to be doing. And so we're, we're essentially incentivizing, you know, management to look the other way because they know they can't do anything about it. And so they're, you know, I'm sure over time and generations, you just, you are taught to just forget it. You know, some guy gets 18 infractions. Yeah. Well, nobody's going to fire him. So let's move on. Right. And for those that, vote for Democratic candidates and feel that they're on the blue team, this is a time to challenge yourself. Do public employee unions help society in the way that they're structured? Is that a good thing? And just because the politicians that you like and that you support and that by and large agree with your ideology support public employee unions, at least outwardly, it's time to maybe question that and look at this more deeply. Are we getting what we need from these unions that that represent police departments and we could say, probably say the same thing about teachers but we don't want to wade into that now do we um and uh, nope. is is there because we all have to look at at the things that we believe and be able to question them in order to actually change things yes but the unions are always going to matter for a number of reasons to a lot of people especially because without having you know, money completely out of politics, they're always going to be essentially a lobby group, you know? So really, yeah, but, if but, we want if we want to get to the heart of everything that's wrong systemically in our government, we have to get the money out of politics. I don't know if public employee unions can be good or if they, you know, but I know that the policeman that, that killed uh, George Floyd had 16 violations. And in, in a restaurant, if somebody had been infracted 16 times and they were still working there, you would be the worst owner of a restaurant in the country. <laughs> right. So why does this happen? I mean, if, if, if the JetBlue flight attendant had, you know, broken policy and, and been rude to people and been written up 16 times, would JetBlue be doing its job to keep them working? And so we have to ask why this happens. It's, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. Yep. While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full-service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. All right, I'm really excited to welcome our guest. Uh, her name is Casey Felton. She is the chef and owner of Bonwe in Los Angeles. And I also just want to note before we get started that we recorded this interview about a week ago, and we all know how much has happened since then. So just keep that in mind when you're listening to our amazing interview with Miss Casey Felton. Welcome to the show, Casey. Woo! Hi, Casey. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, we're so excited to have you here. Um, so we're just going to jump right in. I want to know all of it, but I have to ask first, when I was doing a little digging on you, I saw that you first went to school for art history. How did that, <laughs> how did you change from art history to the culinary world? What I happened? Know, much to the dismay of my poor parents. Um, you know, I <laughs> I did the whole undergraduate thing. You know, I think that when you are a lost student, which was very much the case for me, you choose uh, literature or English or possibly art history. So um, <laughs> that was that was what psychology happened. or psychology. Yes, yeah. I have a psychology degree, anthropology <laughs> or something like that. Um, 
you know, I've always loved art and I grew up in a family that collects quite a bit of art. And I think that that, you know, kind of having been ingrained already into my bloodline was what spearheaded me into becoming an art history major and thinking that maybe I'd become a curator at a museum of sorts. But, you know, in the end of the day, I, uh, I still had very little focus by the time I had graduated and I worked as a paralegal for about four years. And I worked part-time at Fred Siegel Beauty as an assistant buyer to their um, beauty department. And it was only until 2008 hit, something that's kind of similar to the, what's happening with the economy now, but for very different reasons, that I had to um, rethink my career. So that's kind of how I fell backwards into culinary. You went to cooking school at that time? I did. And I will say, and I'm like pretty confident in in sharing this with most people. I don't recommend culinary school. Culinary school is for people who truly have never cooked in their entire lives. I mean, we're talking grilled cheese, pancakes, eggs, you know, I had I had those abilities before culinary school. For people who have the passion or going to it for the right reasons, if you have any skill set, just go into a kitchen. Go straight right. into a restaurant that you love eating at or you respect or you heard of. They probably won't pay you for the first, I don't know, month, two months, three months that you're working there. But if you do a good enough job, they will hire you. And that will be um, a free education. But you got super lucky right after uh, work, uh, going to school at Le Cordon Bleu. You got a, your start at Providence in Los Angeles, which is notably one of the most uh, you know, important restaurants in, in L.A. in the last decade. It Tell is. Me about it. Yeah. I, I still love Providence and I still love the chef there and I still love um, what that kitchen was to me at that time. That was an externship. So part of your graduation um, is that you had to do an externship. And mm-hmm. I did a three month externship there unpaid. And uh, I had chosen Providence because I had gone there maybe twice um, with my parents for like celebratory reasons. Um, it's the only reason you would ever go to such a beautiful restaurant. And I remember just being blown out of the water. Like everything I tasted was an epiphany. It was something new. It was something I could never have even imagined myself. And so when it came time to choose where I was going to do my externship, it was so clear to me. I was like, Providence, of course. Why wouldn't I go to the place that was, was the reason why I decided to kind of go into cooking? What did you learn there? Uh, I would say what Providence lent to me was a really solid backbone. Um, it, it really taught the importance of cleanliness, uh, discipline, respect for the product, and an understanding of delicacy. Um, and it, it was wonderful. I, I absolutely loved that kitchen. And I have not been back to eat, but I know that if I were to go back to eat, I, I think I would fall in love with it again. And so then what took you to Red Medicine, also another amazing restaurant in Los Angeles? So Red Medicine is Chef Jordan Kahn, and um, he was a pastry chef before he turned savory. Um, He was incredible in terms of his knowledge of kind of like molecular cooking. Um, He was an artist or is an artist when it comes to plate up. one of the sous chefs over at Providence had decided to go over there and become Jordan's chef de cuisine. Mm. So he was recruiting at the time um, young cooks who were looking for a change, and I was ready for that change. And 
um, another cook in the kitchen had recommended me. So that's kind of how I landed over at Red Medicine. You're moving up the ranks. You're going through all of these uh, great restaurants and you land your first sous chef position at Tasting Kitchen under Casey Lane. Yeah? This is true. Um, it wasn't a given sous chef position. I will say that was kind of an interesting story. I had heard through the grapevine that what he was really good at is hiring several sous chefs. So basically all of his line cooks were like junior sous. Which was so we put you all on salary, right? So we could work, exactly. work you to death. Okay, exactly. Got it. So it was very, very clever of him. And smart I think guy. He's, he's a very smart businessman. Um, yes, I hope he hears this now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, very, very smart. Uh, I was actually one of the first that he had told in the interview, and I was surprised when he told me this, that he does, he never hires anyone on as a sous chef. Um, lo and behold, that was not true, but that's fine. Uh, and I worked really hard and I kept to myself. I was the first, um, female savory cook in that kitchen, which was interesting. So they had uh, female cooks in there, but they were pastry. Um, and I came onto that line and, you know, kitchen culture is, is pretty male dominated. And I just remember yeah. thinking, I cannot be here for these fools. So I <laughs> kept my mouth shut and I never made eye contact and I went in and I worked super hard. And when there was time to stand around, I was cleaning. There was no conversation. And I think all those guys thought, wow, she is like the least friendly person that we have ever met. But it was just, I had my eye on the prize and it was that I wanted to grow and I wanted to succeed and I wasn't going to let anything get in my way. So. Isn't that so funny though? So a, a couple of our most recent podcasts that we've done, we've talked about the fact that there are very few women in the culinary world that are not specifically pastry chefs and how difficult it is for them to you know, have to work in a, uh, the same environment that any man could, like, there's just different rules that apply. It's, um, and it's really evident in, in kitchens because they're so male dominated. And so I always know as a recruiter, when I'm talking to female chefs who have made it all the way to the top, like you, like you're a million times tougher than any dude I'm going to talk to. Right. I mean, there's, true. there just needs to be a level of sensitivity um, that you understand and that you are able to kind of take a beat. You know, yeah. anytime something happens or something is said or an act is taken that normally you would you would kind of raise an eyebrow to, instead you kind of just let it go because yeah. there are bigger battles to fight. You know, you have to pick and choose. I've been really fortunate in my kitchens because I have guys who are just incredibly respectful. And um, I've, I've definitely dealt with others, but the ones that have stuck around and the ones that I really rely on, I mean, they are, I'm so grateful for them. So then you took like a year off and you went to Sydney, Australia to cook. And I, I'm really curious to know, because I've never been to Australia, what was the, were, were there big differences between how restaurants are run there than uh, as opposed to how they're done here? Definitely. Um, so I was living in Sydney, Australia, and I was lucky enough to be living with a woman named Angie Hong, who was kind of who's seen as the godmother of Vietnamese cooking in Sydney. Um, she had immigrated over, I think, during the 60s as a chemistry student and then had a family and realized she needed to support that family and went into cooking and she was a master at it. So she was able to open several restaurants. And now her son, Dan Hong, it's almost like the David Chang of Australia. 
Um, and he owns several, I don't even know how many restaurants he owns at this point in, in Sydney. So I went and worked at one of Dan's restaurants, um, at the get-go called Mr. Wong's. They are different. Australia is different culinary wise or restaurant wise because it is run more like a European kitchen. And I think that's mostly because Aussies are really smart. They leave, they travel, they experience, and then they take whatever they learned over the last 15 years of travel back home. And what, what is the difference between a European kitchen or an Australian kitchen and an American kitchen? How do they work differently? Discipline, I would say. Um, an understanding of, I don't want to call it the brigade because it's the brigade is so outdated at this point. But I think it's just the understanding of you call your chef chef. I think people wear their chef whites. I think there's a little bit more uh, formality is probably the best way to put it. I worked at a restaurant years ago in London that was kind of a Michelin aspirational restaurant, really fine dining. And it was it was really interesting. It was very traditional. And like you said, you know, you, the chef walks into the kitchen and everybody at once, we chef. Right. And that but what I was impressed by is how clean they would I mean, they, they would scrub with soap and bleach and the kitchen yeah. would just be immaculate at the end of the night the, the and I, I liked, and I learned a tremendous amount. The thing that I missed is that it wasn't as fun, you know, restaurants in the United States, the staff had a lot more fun together True. and there, it was just business. You know, at the end of the night, we could eat the leftover cheese and drink some wine and stuff, but it wasn't the environment of the American restaurant with a bunch of entitled people, you know, drinking away the profits and stuff. And I, I missed that fun element. Absolutely. Well, I think that you defined it better than I did. <laughs> So how did you uh, meet Armin? Tell me about him and how that, how Banwe uh, came to be. Sure. Um, Armin and I were both cooks over at the tasting kitchen. Mm -hmm. uh, he worked pasta and I worked fish and we just became very good buds. We became very good friends um, over the years. And it was when I was leaving the tasting kitchen um, to go to Australia you know, I knew he was kind of hitting his ceiling there. And I, I said to him, I was like, you know, I'm going to Australia. I'll let you know how it goes. He was like, you know, I've got family out in Australia. I was like, you're kidding. So I went over there. I quickly discovered that it was such a great culinary experience and environment for, for cooks. And I emailed or texted him and I said, dude, you got to come out here. So he came out to Australia and he stayed out there for about six months cooking. And um, it was only until we kind of returned that I thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to start something, why not start something with someone that, you know, has kind of a similar background to me, but a little bit different and is a good friend. So uh, that's how Bonnie started. And it started as a pop-up? It did. It started as um, at Smorgasburg in downtown LA, which is an outdoor food market. So banh mi, French Vietnamese sandwich, kind of born from the French colonizing in Vietnam. Uh, French brought bread, chocolate, pate. Vietnamese brought spice, herbs, chilies, uh, pickles. And that street food kind of became a hit. I had the best banh mi of my life while living in Australia. Angie actually was the one who took me to a little suburb called Merrickville. And it's called Merrickville Pork Roll. Um, it's a little stand and... I mean, this banh mi was, it was loaded. It was so full of flavor. It was unafraid of being what it needed to be. What is the deal with pop-ups? You know, this wasn't a thing when I was kind of coming up. 
you know, I, there might have, somebody might have done it. And I, I think it probably took social media to really make pop-ups work. But is it, is it something that, does it work? Or is it a way to develop something that you're going to turn into a restaurant or something, you know, brick and mortar? What is, what is people, what are people's expectations from a pop-up? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends in what you mean. What does it, does it work? Does it work financially? No. Does it work as a marketing tool? Yes. Um, is it a great way to, to guinea pig an idea? Yes. We did that outdoor market for two years. We took over the standard hotel rooftop for a summer. And wow. from all of that work, we were able to save enough money and secure a brick and mortar, uh, which is Bonwe, located on Coenga and Selma. Um, it's been open for a little over two years now. So I read that Armin, your business partner at Bonwe, actually sold his burial plots in order to raise enough money to open this restaurant. I have never mm-hmm. heard something like that before, but is that true? It is true. It's so oh true. Um, we, I, when I tell you that he and I went through everything possible to make this happen and make it happen without investor money mm-hmm. and to do so entirely from just our work alone and the money that we made, Inside of Bonwe, or is it inside of We Bakery that you have Tony Kachapuri? Did I say that right? You did say it right. Oh, goody, yay me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, Tony Kachapuri is inside Bonwe. We opened in July, summertime, which was great, or June, I should say, which was great because that's kind of our busiest season. And then we learned very quickly that our business relied upon the people who work in that neighborhood. And those people were mostly uh, industry of the entertainment industry. And that's when um, a lot of those production companies close down and they go home. I was lucky enough to be introduced to Kachapuri uh, through Saj Bakery in Northridge. I fell in love with it. I thought, what is this? Who thought of this? It's incredible. Can you describe it for our listeners who might not know what it is? um, It is a Jarian style Kachapuri, which refers to its shape. So it's shaped like a boat. Um, on the inside, there's a cheese mix of sorts. They usually cut a little slab of butter on it when it comes out of the oven um, and an egg yolk that goes into it as well. So, right. And imagine, the boat shape is actually the bread, right? It's so it's bread like itself. bread and cheese and gooey, yummy egg. It looks amazing. <laughs> yeah, people love it. So it's great. Um, and we decided, we did some test runs. I ordered like three different kinds of cookbooks online. I did a ton of research, some testing. So it was an immediate hit, and it was surprisingly through Tony Kachapuri that we received a ton of coverage, um, PR coverage, uh, editorial coverage, that then would mention Bonwee kind of as a sidebar to Tony Kachapuri. So, But I do imagine during all of the shutdowns that have been happening around the coronavirus or COVID shutdowns that you guys were probably positioned pretty well, right? I mean, Absolutely. how is business now? We are so lucky in that a lot of our food was already grab and go. Um, I would say where it hurt us most is that, as I had mentioned before, um, our lunch rush was supported by everyone who worked in that neighborhood. I mean, we are in the heart of Hollywood, um, tons of commercial buildings and offices. Mm-hmm. That workforce moved home. Yeah. So we felt a huge, huge hit. I mean, probably in the beginning, about 75% loss in revenue. We're probably now about 50%. Um, loss in revenue. We do use the third-party delivery systems, which I think everyone knows by now that they take about a 30% cut of your revenue. 
Exactly. So, you know, the numbers are never as accurate as you want them to be because you forget all the little payouts that you have to make out to everybody who wants a piece of you. So, um, we, again, I think that we're so fortunate. We did not close. I know a lot of even fast casual operations decided to close to kind of regroup and then reopen. We thought it better to just stay open and continue pushing through because we still had product, you know, we had product in our walk-ins. Um, Mm -hmm. it would have been tossed and then we would have had to buy all new product, uh, to reopen again. And that would have been a larger hit than just continuing to, to push through and even have really short, short days. All right. Well, on that note, I think it's time for story time. And Casey has a really great story talking about how communities really rely on each other to survive. Casey, you're up. Something that became extremely important to me, I think probably starting over at Providence and then over to Red Medicine was understanding where where product comes from. I think that we can very easily overlook where the work comes from, where, how long does it take someone to create this bag of rice or pick this and dry these bag of beans and where did this beautiful um, herb and lettuce come from. Bonwee is located so fortunately right uh, behind the Hollywood Farmers Market. Um, it's got great purveyors, incredible farmers, and they travel an hour, two hours, maybe even more every single week to be able to sell their product and share it with the general public. These are the people who who do the work. You know, they're not just salespeople. You're looking at the people who have their hands, hands dirty um, and, and working really hard. During a time like Corona, their sales completely plummeted. What happens obviously at a market is that you have an influx of groups of people walking around one another within a small space. Between the hours of 8 a.m. and 1 p.m., only a certain amount of people are allowed into the market. So they're not even beginning to see at least half of the amount of people that they were able to see before. It was hard. It was definitely hard to see, and you you could feel the energy of it, and you could feel the dismay of, of the effects of this pandemic. It became very, very important that Bonwee, because of its location, do something to support. So what we have started to do is cook 150 meals (laughs) for 150 of those vendors every single Sunday, and it is a team effort. Um, I did it one Sunday just based on what I had in my walk-in and in my pantry, and as soon as they all found out that I was just doing this for them, they started to donate produce. Um, So every week I get cases of, you know, started with snap peas, cabbage, carrots, Um, We did sausages, bacon, and based on whatever they give me, I'm able to put together 150 meals for their lunch every single Sunday. I think we hear a lot of negative stories out there. If there was ever a time to be giving and ever a time to be supportive, um, it's now.
Well, thanks again, everyone, for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. And thank you to our guest, Chef Casey Felton. You can find more info on her at bonhui.com. That's spelled B-A-N-H-O-U-I.com. And on all social platforms at bon underscore we. You can find us and our episode pictures at While We Were Waiting podcast. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we want to hear from you. Just send us an email at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social platforms at Waiting Podcast. And like I said before, if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review. Hit that subscribe button and uh, listen to us every week, anywhere podcasts are found. Until we meet again, use your voice for good. Take a stance. Be brave. Take care, everyone. Close my eyes.